Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Passion. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 14, verses 15 to 24, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Helper. Writing in an article in Christianity Today, author Gary Thomas wrote, Thinking about eternity helps us retrieve perspective. I'm reminded of this every year when I figure my taxes. During the year, I rejoice at the paychecks and extra income, and sometimes I flinch when I write out the tithe and offering. I do my best to be a joyful giver, but I confess it is not always easy, especially when there are other perceived needs and wants. At the end of the year, however, all of that changes. As I'm figuring my tax liability, I wince at every source of income and rejoice with every tithe and offering check. More income means more tax, but every offering and tithe means less tax. Everything is turned upside down or perhaps, or appropriately, right side up. I suspect, he says, judgment day will be like that. I suspect he's right, that the things that were the hardest here will be our greatest source of joy there. And I know for certain that focusing on heaven changes our perspective. See, it reminds us what will happen in the end. Indeed, heaven gives us great courage, for we know that our very best days, no no matter how old or young we are, are ahead of us, not behind us. Think about it. Your best days are yet to come. But, and this is key, you have to keep perspective for all your life. Otherwise, you'll quickly fail. But how do you keep that perspective for a lifetime? There are, as we know, hundreds of frustrations, fears, disappointments, disasters, diseases, suffering, distractions, trivialities, global pandemics, and sins that suck the life out of us. We lose focus. Here's good news. The Holy Spirit is our perspective keeper. And Jesus was promising his disciples that he was not only going away to prepare a place for them, he was giving them the Holy Spirit now. His power in our lives is so great that it is possible to live well for a lifetime. But let's start by doing the most important thing. Let's read our Bible. John 14, 15 to 24. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. As I read that text, I realize that verse 15 is key to understanding it all. If you love me, you'll keep my word. See, the litmus test of love for Jesus is obedience to him. Don't you dare say you love Jesus when you won't do what he commands you to do. Now, I don't know about you. I I find him a poor lover of Jesus. 
I want to love him more. I, I want to keep perspective on heaven. But how quickly the world crowds in and the love of Jesus fades away. I remember hearing what was a very interesting but true story some years ago. Well, when I read it was old already, it happened in October of 1982 during a college football game at the University of Wisconsin. 60,000 fans had filled the stadium and the home team was getting beaten badly. But in the middle of the game, in spite of the fact that their team was losing, huge cheers were going up from the loyal fans. It didn't make any sense. It turned out that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the World Series, and many fans were listening on portable radios. They were watching a depressing game, but they were responding to news that was coming from another place. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's bringing us news from heaven. He is the one who, because of victory in heaven, keeps us in love with Jesus through our obedience to him. Let's step back. Who is the Holy Spirit? I want you to notice the word another in verse 16. There are, in fact, two different Greek words that can be translated as another. And the first is the word heteros, and it means another of a different kind. You know, so I drive a Honda Civic, and I want you to imagine that my car is stolen, and I replace it with another car. Now, if I use the word heteros, it would mean that I would replace it with a Toyota or a Chevy or a Volkswagen. But the second Greek word translated another, that's the word alos. It means another of the same kind. So if my Civic is gone and it's replaced with another alos, it's going to be the same color, the same model year, and with the same optional equipment. That would be alos, another of the same kind. Now, when Jesus said he would send another helper, which word does he use? This is vital. He uses the word alos, another of the same kind. Or Jesus said, I will send another who is just like me. So what do we know about the Holy Spirit from that? Well, as we've seen, he's a person very much like Jesus. Since Jesus is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it or a power. He's a person. And since Jesus referred to himself as divine, as God, the Holy Spirit then also must be God then all the attributes of God that are properly applied to both Jesus and the Father are also properly applied to the Holy Spirit. He's omnipresent, present to all spaces at all times. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He is the one true God. Here we have the doctrine of the Trinity. But we also know that he is not only one in being with Jesus, he also has a role, just like Jesus. I want you to notice that Jesus refers to himself as the helper. And the Holy Spirit is another helper in the exact same way as Jesus is a helper. See, that word helper, well, that's translated in different English Bibles as either, you know, counselor or comforter or advocate. The Greek word is the word paraclete, and there's actually no English equivalent for that word. I think helper is as close as it gets, but let me explain. The word comes from a root, which means someone who's called to come alongside of someone else in order to help them or to give them aid. So it was often used in the Greek world of someone who is, you know, very much like a lawyer. It referred to a legal counsel in court. It was one who argued a case and stood in someone's stead. And so that's why our Bible translates this as helper, someone who comes alongside to help or gives aid when we're in trouble. Now, from this passage, Jesus calls him another helper, just like the helper I've been. 
So if you want to understand this, we have to ask, what kind of paraclete or helper or advocate was Jesus in relation to his disciples? And the answer is actually quite easy, wide-reaching. He was a teacher. He taught them the truth of God and his kingdom. Jesus was a healer. He taught them faith. He was an encourager. He corrected them when they were in the wrong. He showed them the full extent of his love. He taught them how to love each other. He discipled them. He taught them how to live. He observed them and essentially reproduced his life in them. He trained them for effective ministry. He taught them how to pray. So many things. Okay, Jesus said, I know you needed all of that. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will do the same while I'm away. See, I love what Hendrickson said. He said, the sense is this. Instead of becoming poorer, the disciples are actually going to become richer. To be sure, one helper is leaving, but he leaves with the purpose of sending another. Moreover, the first helper, though physically absent, will remain a helper. He will be their helper in heaven. The other will be their helper on earth. The first pleads their case with God. The second pleads God's case with them. See, I quote that because I don't know how to say it any better. Jesus is now our legal advocate in heaven. His blood is pleading our case before the Father. That means that he continues to ensure that we have a home in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is our legal advocate on earth, pleading with us to love Jesus, to be obedient to him, to understand Christ's truth, to live our lives with a perspective of God and of heaven and of eternity. That ensures that our way to heaven remains open. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's his role as God in our lives. But what does the Holy Spirit provide for us? Well, from verses 17 to 20, I see at least four benefits or provisions or realities of what it means to have the Holy Spirit living in us. Here's the first, verse 17. It talks about an inner experience. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. According to verse 17, the Holy Spirit has a role among believers that's not available to non-believers. That is, once one has experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, one becomes immediately aware that one has received something the world does not have. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, it's with great sincerity that the entire Back to the Bible ministry team wants to express its deep appreciation for the gracious support of all of our donors. But for this moment, we'd like to express our gratitude to those of you who support this ministry as monthly partners. In normal times, we recognize and value the important role you play. But in unprecedented times as these, The essential nature of your commitment to continue to teach the Bible and share the gospel could not be more obvious. So thank you. Please be assured of our daily prayers for you and your families in challenging times. We extend our gratitude for your partnership in the gospel. And remember, all of our resources continue to be made available online at backtothebible.ca. Or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-663. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit has no role in the lives of non-believers. You know, according to John 16, verse 8, the Holy Spirit brings the whole world an inner conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
And we also know that the Holy Spirit is drawing non-believers to faith in Christ. So whatever verse 17 says, it's not saying that non-believers aren't affected by the Holy Spirit. But this is key. There is something that unbelievers simply do not have available to them until they meet Christ. Well, one is they can't see the Holy Spirit. The word here is the word which means both to see and to experience. And secondly, and this is repeated twice, they cannot know him, but every single believer does know him. The Greek word for know means to know something through personal experience. So every believer has an active experience with the Holy Spirit. And when we're told that the Holy Spirit is both with us and in us, Jesus said that would be a real, tangible, and felt experience. Now, are you listening? We don't just believe as Christians that the Holy Spirit has come to us and to reveal Jesus and to guide us into all truth or to teach and disciple us and to comfort and counsel us. I mean, all of that is true. But it's also a genuine, internal, felt experience in the life of everyone who calls Jesus Lord. The action of the Holy Spirit and his presence in our lives is not only believed, it's felt, it's experienced. We know what it is to grieve the Holy Spirit. We know what it is to be prompted by the Holy Spirit. We know what it is to be drawn by the Holy Spirit to love Christ more. And we know what it is to be encouraged to obey. All of that kind of language is experiential. We don't just believe in God, we experience God. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Here's what I think some of us have not grasped. Some of us are living orphan-like existence. Jesus has gone to heaven. We think our task is, you know, just hang on until he comes back. Look, Jesus promised that the presence of the Spirit would be a tangible experience for the believer. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit provides us. Now, second, he also provides for us a genuine foretaste of what is to come. It's in verse 19. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Now, the first half of the verse is, I think, easily explained. Jesus will go and die on a cross, and from that point, that's the last the world is going to see of him. After he's raised, he's going to show himself to his disciples, and you remember he showed himself to 500 at one time. But Jesus showed himself to his followers only. The hope of the resurrection was the hope for his followers, not for the world. So Jesus said, in a little while you will see me, but the world will not. And then he follows with that line, because I live, that is, because I'm alive, showing myself to you in my resurrection body, having defeated death, now living an indestructible life, because of that, you also will live in the same way. Now, I know that in one sense, that's going to be accomplished when we die. But in quite another sense, that's the content of Christ's communication. He's telling the disciples now why they don't have to worry. It's this, the resurrection life, the life of eternity, that life is available to them now through the Holy Spirit. His presence is already the foretaste of eternity. In experiencing him, they have already gotten a foretaste of what eternity will be like. Verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Notice here, we've talked about an inner experience and then a foretaste of what is to come, but now something else is added. What had eluded the disciples up to that point was the true identity of Jesus. It's now going to become crystal clear to them. They will understand the true relationship between the Father and the Son. 
And then eventually, they would understand that this closeness between Father and the Son will form the basis of their relationship with each other. Now, can we all be honest? This is great stuff. But is it just a theory? I mean, you know, the life of eternity, the experience of God, insight into the Father and the Son, which results in love for one another. I mean, you know, some people will say, think about that. I mean, many of us have heard of, you know, church fights and carnal members running churches and of people who, you know, talk about one another in, in a gossipy way. I mean, it just goes on and on. I once heard the story of a newly promoted colonel in the U.S. Army who had moved into a makeshift office during the first Gulf War. He was just getting unpacked when, out of the corner of his eye, he noticed a private coming his way with a toolbox. Wanting to seem important, he grabbed the phone and faked a conversation. Yep, General Schwarzkopf, he said. And then he added a little spice to it. He ended by saying, okay, Norm, goodbye. Then he looked at the private, how can I help you? And the private, without batting an eye, said, I'm here to hook up your phone. (laughs) You know, I wonder how many of us are faking our conversations with God. I wonder how many of us hear of the experience we're supposed to have, and then, well, we just hope no one's going to notice or understand that that's not our experience at all. I mean, if that's you, I want to introduce you to an exciting truth. If there is anything that the Holy Spirit specializes in, it is taking ordinary, not extraordinary, but ordinary people, making them born again, and creating in them the life of Jesus. Now, what power does the Holy Spirit give us? Look again at verses 21 to 24. Let's start with verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You know, most Bible teachers notice that these verses are a return to the theme of verse 15. In fact, verse 15 and verses 21 to 24 really repeat the same theme. You see, ultimately, the Holy Spirit wants to make us authentic so that our inner life is completely transformed so that we're actually living out the life of God. Do you want that? Boy, I hope you do. In fact, if you look again at verse 21, whoever has and keeps my commandments, well, these words come to us in an ongoing present tense. It's Jesus saying, whoever constantly keeps my commands or whoever is consistently and regularly in a pattern of life keeping my commands. You know, verse 21 presents a pattern of authenticity, someone who is always obeying Jesus. I mean, that person who is always obeying Jesus will be loved by God, says Jesus. But someone might say, well, wait, Doesn't the Bible say, you know, we love him because he first loved us? I mean, this makes it sound like God loves us because we first loved him. And if that were the case, I know none of us would stand a chance. I mean, if God only loves me when I love him, I guess I'm not loved. But do you know there are a great many Christians who have never felt they're loved by God? And never. They feel judged by God. They feel God's less than impressed with them. They feel substandard. That's how they live their lives. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, the inconsistency they feel in living out their own lives. So when they read something like this, they feel, I got no hope. They feel weak. They they feel defeated. Let me quote Hendrickson again. But why cannot God's love both proceed and follow ours? That's exactly what it does. And that's the beauty of it. First, by preceding our love, it creates in us the eager desire to keep Christ's precepts. Then, by following our love, it rewards us for keeping them. See, God has poured out his love onto us to shape us into obedience. And every time we obey, he pours out more love on us to say, well, good, 
Well done. Way to go. Keep on going. And it's with this in mind that verse 23 makes sense. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, not only does God pour out his love on us when we obey, but look at the last section of verse 23. That is, we will make our home with him. See, that language of making our home with him or in him reminds me of the language of the experience of the Holy Spirit. But, but who can do that? I mean, who can, who can obey the Lord? Well, the answer is easy. That's why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's our helper. He's the one who comes alongside. He assists us. We know that we can't love as we ought, but the Holy Spirit says, here, let me help. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me end with a story that I told of those, you know, 60,000 fans in the University of Wisconsin Stadium, and they were watching the defeat of their team, and they were cheering a victory that was coming from another place. And I want you to picture your own life in exactly that way. I know all of us are struggling with our own disobedience and sins, and with our own lack of focus on the things of God, and how quickly we become distracted by so many things. Well, the Holy Spirit has been sent and he is reminding you that Jesus has won the battle on your behalf. There's great news that's coming from another place. God has made you whole in Christ Jesus, and you will not be denied. Are you aware of the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you aware of your helper? Learn as much as you can about him and recognize what he does for you. John, I like this idea of the experience of the Holy Spirit. And, and you know, we experience the Holy Spirit in, in multiple different denominations and churches in so many different ways. But the, the shame of it is sometimes is that it almost makes us reluctant for some of us to, to experience the Spirit at all. Yeah, you know, yeah. someone says, I am Pentecostal. Someone says, I'm not Pentecostal. And so, you know, b- because we have disagreements between ourselves, Um, I think sometimes we stop talking about the Holy Spirit entirely. And I would like to say, look, there's so much in Scripture about the Holy Spirit. There's so many advantages that the Holy Spirit brings us. But none the least of these is that there is an experience of the Holy Spirit in the life of every single believer. And if you get beyond all the disagreements that we have and actually ask people their experience with the Holy Spirit, it's amazing what they say. Uh, this This is the account of every believer. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue this series, Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month, we'll be featuring Dr. Neufeld's new series, Passion. This three-week series is focused on the Gospel of John chapters 12 to 14, and we'll take you through the study of the critical teachings of the Easter season. Join us every weekday beginning March 30th. And remember, you never need to miss an episode. All of our Bible teaching audio and video programs are available online at backtothebible.ca or for your convenience, sign up for the Back to the Bible Canada podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or download our free mobile app. This Easter season journey with Dr. Neufeld into an understanding of Christ's sacrifice and victory that perhaps you've never considered before. For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.